Father in heaven, we come before you, many of us with concerns in our hearts, anxieties, fears. Uh, there's a lot that can draw us away from fixing our attention upon you. So I pray that you would quiet our hearts and give us ears to hear your word. That's what we need more than anything else. So would you come and speak to us through the scriptures? Would you meet us here and uh, do your gracious work in each of us? And pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever consider the sheer godlessness that we're surrounded by in this world? How many people live their lives day after day without giving any thought to God? Many are apathetic toward Him or ignore Him altogether. They simply pursue after their desires with themselves at the center of the universe and no room for God. What a tragedy that is. Not to care one bit about God, the God who made us and sustains us, our every breath, moment by moment, that's clear evidence of being lost. We might think that the answer to that problem is that we need people who can develop an awareness, even a zeal for God. But then we get to a place like the beginning of Romans chapter 10, and we discover that zeal for God is not the answer. We find that it is possible to have a zeal for God and yet not to be saved. You can ardently pursue after what has been given by God himself and in the end be lost, committed to everlasting shame. So if, if zeal for God is not enough then what is the answer? How then can we be saved? Well, as we step into Romans chapter 10 today, I want to remind you of the recent context that we're coming out of as, as we look at this question. If you've been with us, you might recall that Paul began Romans 9 telling of his great sorrow and the unceasing anguish of his heart. And it was over unbelieving Israel. He told us that God's word to them has not failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He told us that God sovereignly chooses some to have mercy on and to save and not others. And that God is calling his chosen people to himself from both Jew and Gentile as he has the right to do. Well, here as we arrive at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul's returning once again to the same concern. It's a concern over the unbelief of his Jewish kinsmen. So look at verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now this is really instructive for us. Some people will look at what we've just been over for the past couple of weeks and say, if election, if predestination is true, then there's no sense in sharing the gospel with the lost or, or praying for someone who's lost. But Paul emphatically did not think that way. In fact, we find in Acts chapter 18 that when Paul is in the city of Corinth, he receives a vision from the Lord to assure him that the Lord is with him 
that Paul will not suffer anymore in this city, and that his gospel ministry will bear fruit. The Lord says to him there, he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. The last part is, is an indication that the Lord is going to draw his people out from among this lost city to himself through the ministry of Paul. What it doesn't say is that because Paul heard this word from the Lord that he has many chosen people there, that he figured his effort was unnecessary. Instead, it says, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So evidently for Paul, learning that God had predetermined to save some in Corinth drove him not to inaction, but to action. It kept him there. It encouraged him in his gospel ministry. And I think we're seeing the same thing here in Romans chapter 10. Paul told us previously that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is true within Israel, the people over whom Paul is concerned. So what does Paul do? He prays. And the lesson for us is, is this. It's that understanding that God is entirely sovereign over salvation, over who will be saved, is not incompatible with our obedience to him in getting the gospel out to them. Divine decree does not remove our responsibility to pray and to proclaim. The same God who predetermined the end, the salvation of his people, has also predetermined the means. So let the truths of Romans 9 that we've been over recently drive you not to laziness or cynicism, but instead to confident obedience. Learn from the Apostle Paul. Your prayer, your gospel sharing is the very means that God will use to accomplish his purposes for the sake of his chosen. So it's not at all out of line for Paul to say what he said in Romans chapter 9 and then to say here in chapter 10 that his desire and prayer for his fellow Jews is for their salvation. In verse 2 is where we see their problem. We see that they have a zeal for God, but there's something wrong with it. Look at that. It says there, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's zeal without knowledge. If you want to see some ordinary, everyday examples of this, just go online and peruse the endless postings on social media or comment sections on blogs. Often you'll see a lot of heat, but very little light. Of course, somehow when we read those, we are usually the ones who shake our heads because we have everything figured out. But when it comes to zeal for God without knowledge, we have to recognize that sincerity in religion is not enough. The Jews that Paul is speaking of here are giving their lives to what they're doing religiously. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, sincerely misled. You can be sincerely lost. So what did these unsaved Jews do in their zeal? 
If you look back a few verses to chapter 9, verse 31, it says that they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So the way the Jews are jealous, or excuse me, zealous for God is that they're zealous for his law, the law that he gave them. Chapter 10, verse 3 says they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. So in their zeal, the, the Jews were seeking to secure their own righteousness before God by observing his law, by keeping it. But it's a fatally misguided zeal because it is a zeal without knowledge. And what is their knowledge problem? It says that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. This phrase, righteousness of God, might sound a little familiar if you've been with us since the beginning of Romans. Way back in Romans 1.17, Paul said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we learn there that the righteousness of God is his gift of righteousness that he graciously gives to those who receive it by faith. But the Jews Paul is talking about here did not pursue righteousness by faith. Instead, they're pursuing it by works. And in this ignorant, zealous pursuit, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God placed Christ in Zion. He, he sent his son as a stumbling stone for them, and they stumbled over him. Submitting to God's righteousness would have meant believing in Christ. Christ came proclaiming himself to be the Messiah who would die for sins and rise again. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming himself to be the one who brings God's righteousness as a gift to those who believe in him. And instead of giving ear to his words, they were offended at him. They rejected him. They killed him. You see, they, they stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ. Now, if the Jews had not misused God's law in this way, if they would not have used it to try to earn a righteousness before God, it would have led them to Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end can carry a couple of different senses. One is that of goal. Christ is the goal of the law. So when God gave to Israel his law through Moses, he gave it as a way of pointing ahead to Christ. Christ would come and fulfill the law. He would perfectly keep it. And it would find its completion and its purpose in him. And since that has happened, we can see that Christ is also, in the second sense of the word, the end of the law. The law was given to Israel, but now that Christ has come, this old era has ended. Christ is the greater reality, and his arrival means that the old way of God relating to us through this law given to Israel is finished. Now, those who believe in Christ 
receive the free gift of God's righteousness apart from the law. The old era is ended in Christ. There's a new era has arrived. And listen to a couple of other verses from the New Testament that tell of the same reality that Jesus is the end and the goal of the law. From Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 17, he taught, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Also, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This old era of the law is finished now that Christ has come. So the bottom line as it concerns the Jews that Paul is speaking of here is that the way they got off track is that they were trying to establish their own righteousness before God by keeping the law. That set them on a path. And it was a path to reject Christ when he came. It was a misuse of the law, which was meant to be followed by faith. And faith is the very means of attaining righteousness as the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Israel's response to Christ in unbelief is why they're not saved. And this is why Paul is in such anguish over them and why he's praying earnestly for their salvation. Now, as we move into verse 5, the apostle is going to take us a little deeper here into the argument. And he does so by quoting from the law itself. He says there, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's quoting from Leviticus 18.5. Straight from Moses himself. Do this and you will live. That's the basic principle. Live in the sense at that time that you would enjoy length of days in the promised land. But live in what ultimately points to eternal life. A greater reality. But the problem with righteousness that's based on the law is that true life will never be attained that way. It's not that the scripture was making a false promise, but it is that nobody can do it. Everybody breaks the law. Remember from Romans chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ever since Adam and Eve, our first parents, we have been lawbreakers from the get-go. So while the person who does the commandments will live by them, the reality is that there is no such person. We cannot earn righteousness by observing the law. And it's exactly what the Jews of Paul's concern are doing. They're trying to get righteousness by keeping God's commandments. If the zealous Jews can't do it, if every person who's lived before you can't do it, well, don't waste your time trying to earn your way to a right standing before God. You're not going to be able to do it. And in verse 6, then, Paul presents us with a big contrast. 
He said, that, that's righteousness by the law. Now he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Where does Paul quote from for this righteousness based on faith? This might be surprising. He goes back to Moses again, this time to Deuteronomy 30. The interesting thing is that one chapter earlier in Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses says to the people that they've seen the signs and wonders of the Lord. But, he says, to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In Moses' day, God wasn't working that way graciously among them. But then Deuteronomy 30 looks ahead to a future day. In verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And a few verses later, Moses tells them that the commandment they're receiving is it's not too hard or too far off. Verses 12 through 14 of Deuteronomy 30 read, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. What does Paul do with these verses? Well, he shows how they are fulfilled in Christ. Remember, Christ is the end, the goal of the law. So look with me at Romans 10, 6 through 8. Notice how Paul alters it or adds to it as he quotes it. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, the Israelites weren't supposed to see the commandment of God as far off from them so that they have to pursue it as a, a difficult and distant reality. And neither are we to see Christ that way. Why? Because God has done the work already. We couldn't go up to heaven and bring Christ down. We couldn't descend into the grave and raise him up. God alone can do those things. He alone can bridge the gap. But the point is that, that God has done those things. He sent Christ into the world, down from heaven, after Christ died, God raised him up from the dead. This is the fulfillment of, of the new way that Moses was looking forward to. We are not called to do this and live. That very law pointed ahead to Christ. And now that he is here, God has done the work to give a word of faith, not a word of doing, of works, but a word of faith that Paul proclaimed, and which we now proclaim the word of faith is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. It is near. It's not far away. 
So the response then is not to earn righteousness before God by, by doing something. It's to receive the gift of righteousness by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say these things. Why? Not only because God has done them, but because if we're saying these things, that we're ascending into heaven, descending into the grave, would be to boast in a work of our own. It would be to boast in a righteousness of our own. But when you receive righteousness as a gift by faith, there's no room for boasting. It's all of the Lord. So this means that a key message of the gospel, a message that was anticipated all the way back in Moses' writings, is that righteousness comes by believing, not by doing. We can't get it by doing, and we won't. But God has done the doing. He has done it in Christ by sending him to this earth to live, to die for our sins. And he raised him up from the dead with a command for us to repent from our sins and believe in him. Our tendency is not to go there. It is to be like the Jews that Paul is concerned over and to try to do something for God. That's what we're, we're prone to do. But God's way doesn't work like that. He has done the doing. We are the receivers. We believe in his word that he's given us. It's not to say that Christians are not doers. Christians are doers, servant-hearted doers of many things that God has given us to do. But that doing must never be an attempt to establish our own righteousness. We're never earning a place before God in all that we do. We may be busy with our hands, but in our hearts we're resting. We're resting in what Christ has done, in his righteousness that we've received by grace through faith as God's gracious gift. Verse 9 then begins to explain more specifically how it is that we receive this gift of righteousness from God by faith. Why can we say that this word of faith is near to you in your mouth and in your heart? In other words, how is it that we are saved by believing rather than by doing? All of it rests upon the fact that God has given us a message of good news. And good news is, is what you receive. You hear it, you believe it. So verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, what a sweet promise that is. You mean, God, that the way I'm saved is not by presenting my works before you? All I have to do is confess and believe? Shouldn't there be something more you require of us? No. It's amazing. It's it's all of grace. This is a radical reorientation away from seeking to establish our righteousness before God, which is the thing we're so naturally wired to do. And what is the confession he's asking of us? It is that Jesus is Lord. That's really big. That's offensive. 
that pushes all other things off the throne. Jesus is Lord. And that short confession has massive implications into the way that we live, who we aim to serve, what we aim to do. Jesus is Lord, period. What are we to believe? That God raised him from the dead. It's no accident that these two things are connected here, Jesus as Lord with his resurrection from the dead, because in Jesus' resurrection, he is declared to be Lord. One great place to read about that is in Philippians chapter 2. But the belief here is not simply a belief that Jesus came back from the dead. It's not merely that he rose from the dead. It is that God raised him from the dead. And that means that God has accepted and approved of the work of Christ on the cross. God is bringing about our salvation through Jesus. It means that Christ actually bore our sins on the cross. He wasn't just a random guy who died. No, he was God's Messiah who took our place and God raised him from the dead to approve of that work, to publicly vindicate him. So saving faith is not simply to have a mental assent to these things, but it is trusting in the one who accomplished them. It's a hearty embrace of Christ and his work at the core of your being. Verse 10 explains this confession and belief. It says, For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, he's reversed the order there. He goes with the, the heart first and then the mouth in this, this verse, verse 10. I think this will show us that the confession of your mouth springs from the belief in your heart. The two are necessarily connected. If you, you think you're a believer, but what comes out of your mouth is everything but Christ, you have reason to question whether he actually is your Lord. On the flip side, if, if you confess Christ with your mouth, but there's no trust of him in your heart, there's no resting in him, no love for him, you may just have an empty confession. The heart and the mouth go together. The confession is an external evidence of an internal faith in Christ. To back up this assertion of what God requires of us for salvation, being faith, not works, Paul quotes once again from the Old Testament in verse 11. Look there. He says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is from Isaiah 28.16. Paul already quoted this a few verses before in chapter 9, verse 33. He was talking there about how Israel, in their pursuit of righteousness by works, has stumbled over Christ. Well, here in chapter 10, Paul reminds us again that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's not the shame of, of your dog who gets caught disobeying and puts his tail between his legs for a few minutes. No, this is talking on the same scale as we talk about with salvation. The shame is the humiliation on the day of judgment experienced by those who are condemned. It is an everlasting shame. And Paul's reminding us that 
Those who believe in Christ will not experience that. They will not ever experience the horror of everlasting shame. Well, if you look carefully, we can notice that Paul has slightly changed the way he quoted this from how he did back in 933. In chapter 9, he said, whoever believes in him. Here, he says, everyone who believes in him. That's intentional. Because Paul is highlighting the expansive nature of the promise. He's he's highlighting for us the fact that there's not a single person who puts their trust in Christ who will be put to shame on the last day. Remember, Paul is addressing the issue of unbelieving Jews here. Look how he explains it further in verse 12. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. You see, the law was given by God specifically to Israel. Gentiles did not receive the law. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. What he's done is he's opened up the way of salvation to everyone who will receive it by faith. No matter where you come from, no matter whether you're part of Israel or not. The law is not a factor in our salvation. Faith in Christ is the factor. The confession is of Christ as Lord. And here he says that he's Lord of all, both Jew and Gentile. And he graciously bestows his infinite riches upon everyone who calls upon him. You think we're getting the point, but Paul goes on to cap this off and quotes yet one more time from the Old Testament. This is from the prophet Joel. Joel was a prophet who prophesied about God's judgment upon unfaithful Israel. But in chapter 2 of Joel, The Lord promises that the day will come when he pours out his spirit upon all flesh. And Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It was a radical vision in its day. It was a vision of everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, being saved, even those who are outside of Israel. When we get to Romans chapter 10 and see this quoted in verse 13, we can understand how Paul says that this prophecy is fulfilled. It has come to pass that the salvation of God that came out of Israel is now being offered to all the nations, both Jew and Gentile alike, to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But how do you call upon the name of the Lord? Especially those of us who are Gentiles. How do we call upon the name of the Lord? How do we call upon the name of the God of Israel if we're not of Israel? Well, it's not by trying to keep the law of Moses. We've seen that. No. Paul's telling us that you call upon the name of the God of Israel by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is really big here what he's doing, so don't miss this. Paul is saying that Jesus is 
Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in human flesh. If you notice there, he's taken this verse out of Joel that speaks of the God of Israel, and he's applying it directly to Jesus. God sent his son into the world from heaven. He became a man. He lived and died in such a way that his death pays the penalty for the sins of everyone who believes in him. And God raised him from the dead, seating him in the exalted status of not Lord of Israel only, but Lord of all. So it is that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus as Lord will be saved. Beloved, this is why we can sing marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe because God has worked a wonderful salvation. The gospel seems almost too good to be true, but it is true. The proof is in the fact that God raised him from the dead. We can be tempted to somehow want to contribute something to our salvation. Maybe God did this and I add a little bit of this to it. But we can't. We can't add anything to it. He has done it all through Christ. He's even purchased the grace, as it says in Deuteronomy, of circumcising our hearts so that we do believe. And though we can spend hours unfolding the beautiful aspects of this gospel, at the same time, it's also very simple. It's so simple that someone who's uneducated or a child can understand it. Christ died for your sins. God raised him from the dead, and now he reigns as Lord of all. So stop trying to earn a place with God. Simply trust in what God has done for you in Christ. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone. Believe in Christ. Believe it in your heart. Confess it with your mouth. Call upon the name of Jesus by faith. Even today, God himself assures you, you will be saved. For those who came into this room already believing in Jesus, I know that's many of you. I hope you can respond to what God has communicated to us through the Apostle Paul with a joy and a thankfulness over what he's done in Christ. He has saved you apart from any works that you've done. What good news that is. It's only through faith in Jesus. He's given you a word of faith, not only for you to believe and to profess, but also a message to proclaim. This glorious message that we've received has the ability to connect with every person on the planet because Jesus is Lord of all. Though Jesus came by way of the Jews, it's not a Jewish-only message. It's not a message for a certain class or status or ethnicity. It's a message for every sinner. Messages that if you give up on your efforts, all of your efforts, to earn righteousness before God, and instead you call upon the Lord Jesus by faith, you will be saved. So don't succumb to the lie brother and sister, that you don't know the gospel well enough to share it with others. You do. 
It's the message you believe. It's right here in our Bible. We've been studying it week after week. And Romans 10.9 very simply gives the response that's required by the gospel, along with a promise of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that easy. You can memorize that. You can tell that to someone. What good news it is that Jesus, having been raised by God from the dead, is Lord of all. He is God himself, having come to us in the flesh. And he rules over everything, including every person on the planet and including our salvation. So praise and glory be to his name. Our job is to spread that message, to believe it, to confess it, and to proclaim it. Let's pray together. Father, what a miracle it is that salvation is possible for us. We haven't pleased you in our works. We don't have the right family line to claim anything before you. Thank you that your salvation is all of grace and that you freely bestow it on anyone who will believe, no matter how sinful they have been, no matter what they've done, if they give it up and come to Jesus. So I pray that you will help us to take this, this message, this good news to the ends of the earth. Help us in the places where you have us, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools. Make us to be faithful messengers of Christ uh, for which you've left us here on this earth for a time. And use us mightily for the glory of your name. Amen.